Thanks for listening to this audio sermon from the pulpit of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. You can learn more about us by visiting our website, www.covenant-pca.com. Bibles, and let's turn together God's Word to Acts chapter 9. We'll be in these same verses again next week. So uh, it'll be a passage I'm sure you'll want to read and read again this week as, as you think back on today's sermon as well as forward to next week. There's going to be three main points from these verses, 1 through 31. Uh, the first, or uh, rather 19 through 31. The first is the, the proclamation of the gospel. The second is the, the proof of the gospel. And third is the problem with the gospel. Now I'll give you a clue now. There's not a problem as in a technical glitch in the gospel, but there is, uh, there is a problem that resides with and, and follows the gospel. We've seen it in the life of David already, the persecution that arose against him, the opposition. We'll see that here in Saul as well, but that for next week. Today we're simply going to look at the first point of Saul's calling and how he begins exercising his call, the proclamation of the gospel. Let's read God's inerrant word. Begin reading in, in uh, verse 20. He's been, as we see at the end of verse 19, some days with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? of those who called upon His name. And has He not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill Him, but their plot became known to Saul They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church... Throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are weak people. We're, we're pitiful, actually. We, we're easily distracted. We easily uh, think about things we ought not to think of. 
we, we can begin even now thinking about the things that we'll do later today or tomorrow. Lord, we pray that you would keep our minds fixed upon the, the order before us, the order of the day, the wonderful word that you have given us, the word of life. We pray, Lord, that you would illumine our minds, cause us to hear the word and to see our Savior, Jesus Christ, in his wonderful glory. We pray this in his name. Amen. Last week we saw both the conversion of this man Saul as he was traveling to Damascus in order to further his persecution against the church, but we also saw not only the the conversion of Saul, but also the calling of Saul. We saw it in two questions. the Lord comes to Saul. He stops him in his tracks. That sovereign work of God so evident there. Saul's not looking for God. He's not seeking God. But God sought him and stopped him in his tracks. And this bright light, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ shone around him, the Bible says. And, and Saul asked an important question. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord responded, I am Jesus. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. This is, this is a great and important question. In fact, it's the great and important question. It's, it's the theological question. If you're going to ask a theological question, this is the most important one. This is the eternal, eternally significant question. Who are you? Who are you, Lord? I mean, that's what all of eternity revolves around. Who's Jesus? Who is this Lord? And Jesus says, I'm, I am Jesus. But we also noticed that Jesus says, I am Jesus, get up and go into the city. And there I'm going to tell you what you should do. Now, what Luke doesn't provide us here in the earlier verses of chapter 9 Paul fills in for us later in the book of Acts. In chapter 22, verse 10, he tells us, Saul, by that time going by Paul, Saul tells us that I asked two questions. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And then I said, what do you want me to do? And as James Montgomery Boyce says in his sermon on this text, he says, this is the logical order. Someone who has, who, has, who has been converted by Christ. Someone who the Holy Spirit's working in their heart. The first question is, who is Jesus? Who are you? And when that's settled, I'm the Son of God. I'm the eternal uh, second person of the Godhead. I'm the Savior of sinners. Once that question's settled, then automatically we go to the next logical question. What do you want me to do? And then he tells us, as we saw last week, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which He's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Christian life is not one of sitting and soaking. It's one of of learning and growing and going and doing. If you love me, Jesus says, keep my commandments. And so here, Saul tells us that's exactly how it progressed for him. God worked in his heart. He stopped him suddenly. He converts 
uh, this man turns his heart to Christ and then turns him to doing the things of Christ. And so now we want to look at Saul's public doing, his public obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I said, just one, one point today, and the first point is that of proclamation. Saul rose and he goes into town. Ananias comes, he lays hands on him. The spirit comes. We've already seen how that shows that with whether Hebrew, whether Gentile, God's doing the same thing the same way. That's going to become normalized. It's going to become ordinary so that in a, in, by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, we're going to see that one believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and the, the Holy Spirit comes at that point and there is no intermediate period between those two events. But for now, God's making a, a big point to the Hebrews when he does, does this for the Gentiles and he's making a big point to the Gentiles when he does it the same way to the Hebrews. That there is no middle wall. There is no two people. There's not a Jewish people and a Gentile people. Yes, there's an ethnic di distinction that continues, but there's not a religious distinction. We're one in Christ Jesus. Then some days have passed, and notice what verse 20 says, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. That's the first point I want you to see is under proclamation of the gospel is that that Paul immediately began to kerux the good news. He, that's the word for proclaim, herald, preach. He, he was preaching. This just became his, his M.O. This was the way Paul was now. Saul, Paul. He was preaching. This is a formal preaching. This is not... This is not like Stephen, as we saw earlier, where just everywhere he went in the course of his day, he would talk about Christ, talk about what Christ has done for him. It's not that, it's not that speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking about the gospel. That's what we're all called to do. This is the, the formal proclamation. This is the calling of a man to proclaim. One way we know this is because of the place he does it. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus, not in public, but in the synagogues. Now, just a brief word on the synagogues, because we run into the synagogues in the life of Christ, in the Gospels. We run into them throughout the New Testament. The synagogues, and here there's, there's some, some uh, uh, difference among scholars as to exactly when the synagogue came into existence. I think there's evidence that we have it as early as, as the Mosaic context. We could look at that. We certainly have it in the context of, of the psalmist. And we certainly, certainly have it during the period of the exile of God's people. When they're out of their homeland and they're out in those surrounding nations. It's simply this. The people of God worship God regularly in addition to those formal festivals, those feast days. They kept the Sabbath, the Sabbath day. And so they would go to these synagogues, these gathering places. And so, just as Jesus went into these places and, and would teach and preach, so, so Saul now goes and he preaches the gospel authoritatively in these synagogues. By the way, the synagogues, as they've been studied and the, the way that the people gathered and the things they did there match very much with 
what we've seen in the book of Acts, that very simple worship. They gathered, they sang, they prayed, they preached, they did the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and they went home. It was not complicated. You didn't have to have degrees upon degrees to keep up with the service. Uh, you didn't have to have someone else do it for you. It was simple. They did it along the lines of the synagogue. So he goes there. It's natural that he would. His Savior Jesus had done that. The other apostles are doing that. He's doing that. He's preaching as a man who is duly approved and called to that office, as our larger catechism, 158, says. And if you're familiar with that, you know that that, that question answer dealing with uh, who is supposed to preach the Word of God, men who are duly approved and called to that office, but it's prefaced on the, the ground that they're sufficiently gifted. We certainly see sufficient gifting in, in Saul, don't we? This is a man who had been trained in the Word. He himself says that he was the Hebrew of Hebrews. That as to the law, he was, he was, he was blameless. He not only knew it, but he did it. He knew what he was supposed to do. He was gifted. God's gifting this man in anticipation of and preparation toward the gospel is remarkable. God does that. I think of... Uh, men in history. Think of Augustine. Augustine was an extraordinarily gifted man, well prepared for the gospel ministry, not because he'd gone to seminary, not because he'd been a student of God's Word, but because he'd been trained in logic and rhetoric and, 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 and religion. So had Saul. And so when God converts him, all of a sudden all that that he knows becomes the material for him to do his work. And by the way, he knew the way. He knew what to preach about Jesus because he had studied it well enough to know it, identify it, and be against it. So that when, he, when God changes his heart, when God converts him, when God saves him, as we say often, he can immediately stand up and preach the gospel. Now we're going to see next week that there's a three-year gap in this passage, but... We won't go there now for lack of time. But he is further prepared by God. But at this point, he is, he's, he is prepared to stand and preach. His not, the knowledge and the theology of the way which he had been using against them now becomes uh, the very subject of his preaching, the very material that he's going to preach. He's been against Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now he's going to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He's been against Jesus is the Son of God. Now the first thing he's going to preach is Jesus is the Son of God. He's been against the fact that this Jesus, historical Jesus from Nazareth, was the Messiah that's been prophesied of to come of old. And now he's going to say, I'm going to prove to you from the Bible this is in fact who he was. He didn't, he didn't preach speculative theology. There's a place for that, I believe. Uh, but he preached very simple gospel, that the historical Jesus was the Son of God and that he was the Messiah or the Christ, the anointed one, as you see in verse 22. There's examples of this same preaching elsewhere. 
I could read you off a long list, but you can do that. You can look in your concordance in the back of your Bible as well as in a, in a full exhaustive concordance and look up Son of God and you'll see in the book of Romans, you'll see in the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll see in the book of Galatians, you'll see in 1 Thessalonians, you'll see elsewhere where Paul preaches this point. The sonship of, God, of God's Son, the sonship of Christ, the eternal sonship of Christ. Jesus talks about that very thing and it got him into trouble. You remember what they thought because he was claiming to be God's son? They said, huh, he should be stoned. This is blasphemy. Go read it. John 5, 6 and elsewhere. This is blasphemy. He claims to be God. You say, no, he claimed to be the son of God. Ah, it's the same thing. The Jews understood that. To claim to be the son of God was to claim to be God himself. To be part of that Holy Trinity that we love so much, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, he preaches that he's the eternal Son of God. One fine recent commentator said, reference to Jesus as God's Son in Paul's writings particularly communicate Jesus' unique status and intimate relationship with God. That's it. In other words, I am related to God in a way that you are not and can never be because I am God. I and the Father are one, Jesus said in in John's gospel. Another commentator says that references to Jesus uh, this way speak not only to him being the eternal son of God, but also to the fact that he is he's the creator he's the sustainer of all things here is jesus making these same claims now paul comes along converted and that thing which he denied most he's now proclaiming now this is true what paul couldn't accept with the with the rational mind when god works in his heart he accepts very readily and easily And all of a sudden, it's rational to him. It's reasonable to him. So in other words, before his conversion, he was acting irrationally. Now he's acting very reasonably. Isaiah 9, 6. It's a verse that uh, hopefully you you think about a lot, not just uh, at the end of of a, a, a calendar year. For to us a child is born. We think of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ when we read that. To us a son is given. Did you notice it doesn't say there. It doesn't give any intimation there that the son had a beginning point. The child that's going to be born is a son that's, that's been given. It already existed. He already existed. For, the, for God the Father to give him as a child on this earth, the eternal second person of the Godhead. Galatians 4, 4 says it too, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Perhaps the most... most memorized verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten 
Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He gave us his Son. See, from eternity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit existed. Three persons, one God. Remarkable. So to preach Jesus as the Son of God is to preach His eternal existence. Proclaiming Jesus as Messiah, which we see Him doing here, proving that Jesus was the Messiah or the Christ, verse 22 at the very end. To proclaim Jesus as Messiah is to proclaim that He's the Anointed One. Now that gets you into something interesting. Now you realize what, what Jesus claimed as the anointed one at his baptism and forward. What Paul is proclaiming him as the anointed one is to proclaim that he's the priest. He's the prophet. And he's the king. So I asked the children who've been learning the catechisms, what are the, what are the three offices of Christ? They'd say, He's prophet, priest, and king. As the mediator between God and man, Jesus fulfills that mediatorial office as prophet, priest, and king. That's what he's anointed for. He's the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. We've already seen back in Acts chapter 2 in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost as we reference it. We read this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's Acts 2.36. If you go back there, you'll see that verse is in reference to Peter explaining that Jesus was the fulfillment of Psalm 110, verse 1. God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so it appears from the text that, that Paul here is explaining that the term Son of God, the Eternal One, the Sovereign One, the Lord, is also the Anointed One, the Prophet, the Priest, and the King. Now listen, folks, there is no salvation without a priest. But there's only one priest through whom there is salvation, Jesus Christ. There is no salvation apart from there being a prophet. But there now is no prophet save the one true prophet, Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And there's no salvation without a king who can rule in our hearts, who can crush all of our enemies and all of his enemies. And that one king is Jesus Christ. And so Paul here, in, in this summary fashion that Luke gives it to us, uh, Paul is preaching in his initial sermons a pretty full-orbed gospel sermon. The Jews would have got it and they would have been mad. 
as you see in a, on down in the, in, the, in the verses here, the Hellenistic Jews, they were the Jews who spoke Greek, they were particularly inflamed over this. They, they didn't like this at all. They knew what he was doing. They knew he was preaching that Jesus Christ was exactly who Jesus said he was. They didn't like it when Jesus said it, and they don't like it when Paul says it. But we love it because it's the, it's the truth that sets us free. It's the, it's the good news that, that tells us that there is hope for salvation. Indeed, there is salvation in Jesus Christ and nowhere else. And so we, like Paul, preach that the historical Jesus was and is the eternal God and that as such he's the Savior of sinners and that he's ruling and reigning and judging over all things until he comes again. That's the reason we as Christians, we, we, don't, we don't go hide in bomb shelters just because the end of the earth might be said to be coming in some year from now or something strange or weird like that. We don't go hide ourselves. The early church didn't. What does it say? When they were persecuted, we've already seen this. When they were persecuted, they were scattered and they proclaimed, they told, they spoke. They took the gospel out into the public arena. Yes, sometimes they died for it. We saw at the end of the reading, we'll see it next week more closely, Saul's going to suffer just as David suffered under the wicked Saul. So we have to ask ourselves, Is our faith in Jesus the Son of God? Folks, you know people who say they believe, and you begin to press them on what they believe, and it's not this message. They will even say they believe in Jesus, but when you press them, it's not this Jesus. The only proper object of saving faith is this Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the anointed one, prophet, priest, and king, the one who's ruling and reigning over all things right now do you believe jesus can save because he's the eternal son the eternal second person of the godhead did you notice that uh that some of the people had a hard time believing saul was actually converted did you notice that it's true in damascus it's going to be true when he goes to jerusalem people are going to be a little suspicious You know what that boils down to? It boils down to this. We talk a lot about believing in the sovereignty of God and believing that God can really save sinners. But when we're faced with someone that, that says they've tasted that wonderful grace of God, that they've experienced the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, that they no longer believe what they used to believe, now they believe this gospel. And doubt comes in our mind because... Really? You know, I know the things you've done in the past. I know, I know the things you've done recently. Are you sure? I'm not sure. And it betrays in us an unbelief that God really can take sinners and save them and change them and make them different. Do you notice Saul's different? This is not just a, well, he, you know, he says he's trusting Jesus now, but he's still out doing the same old stuff. None of that here. 
when God takes a man and saves them, as Spurgeon said, he, he makes him different and better than others. He really does. That's what grace is all about. It's not grace if it's not that. There's a transformation that takes place, and we see it in Saul, and we see there's a little, there's a little pang there of conscience for me and surely for some of you who sometimes we meet people who in the past they, they've done this, they've done that. We meet them, and suddenly they're converted. I had this experience since, I've, since we've moved here with a, a friend from years ago that I hadn't seen in years. And I, I call him and, and go to lunch with him, and this man's different. And my first thought was, hmm, I wonder if this is just because he knows who I am. You know, I'm a pastor, so he, he should talk different at the lunch table. It wasn't. God's done a great work in this man's life. He's different. He doesn't do the things he used to do. So we have to ask ourselves, do we believe? And then, Lord, help my unbelief. As the disciples asked the Lord, so we should ask him to help our unbelief. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. He's our God. Do you believe that? Is that where your faith is? May it be so. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would, uh, would cause us all to be able to reflect upon the wonderful grace that you've extended toward us and see that it's done for us just what it did for this man. This wicked man Saul changed him. He wanted to talk about you now. He wanted to tell the truth about who you really are. And so we ask that you would cause us to be just like him. And that we'd rise. And for those of us who are ordained to the, to the office of elder, that we would, we'd be ready in season, out of season, to proclaim his marvelous, marvelous goodness and salvation for each one of us here, that we'd be ready to go out into the neighborhoods, into our workplaces, into our school places, and speak often of Jesus, the true Jesus, the saving one. Now as we come, Lord, as we come to sing, we pray that you will prepare our hearts even further to receive this wonderful gospel sacrament. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Before we sing, I want to I take the privilege to introduce a few folks to you. And here's what we're going to do. Often when, when we have folks coming for membership or children coming who are members of the church but have professed faith in Christ and going to come to the Lord's table, they've been through the communicants class, they've been examined by the session uh, and have been found to have a credible profession of faith. Often we have them and their families come up. Well, we have 10 children this morning. And, uh, and, and so we decided rather than stringing people out around the walls, uh, if we had the whole family, we're going to ask the dads to come up with their children. Dads being the, the head of the household, uh, representing in this case, uh, these are elders and, and, and deacons. Uh, who will be standing up here before you, men who have uh, 
not only been actively nurturing and caring for you, but obviously for their own families as well, which is, a, by the way, a qualification for a man to be an elder and a deacon. They have to be proven in that, in that regard. So I'm going to ask Maddie Buckner and her daddy and Eli Clapp. Don't you love it when you get to that stage where people just know you because you're, you're Maddie's dad and you're, you're Eli's dad? And uh, uh, the Davises, Ethan, Mariah, Liam, come on. Y'all, y'all just come on up here. Mariah, Miranda. No halls. And the Moody's, Madison, and Colin, Esquire. It's great to have you all. I, I tell you, you know, uh, I love you all. Oh, and Ian. <laughs> Come on, I'm standing with you. You know that was not personal. <laughs> but uh, as I was saying, I love you all. But one of the real privileges uh, of being a pastor and an elder, and I know these elders uh, who, who assisted me in teaching the communicants class this round and in past times would say the same thing. One of the real treats is getting to sit with our children as they, as they come to profess faith in Christ and get to teach them and and interact with them, and hear their questions, and, and hear their answers, and, uh, and then to hear their testimonies. When we get to sit, not only, uh, typically the, the process will go something like this, you know, the, the parents will, will approach the elders and say, you know, we think our child, our children, are, are, are truly showing signs of regeneration, and, and, and have expressed faith in Christ, and We'd like, for, uh, we'd like for them to, 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 to think toward the Lord's Supper and full communing membership status. So then we will we'll take that and we'll have a communicants class and we, we go through just wonderful materials of concerning the faith and the sacraments and church governance. Uh, we want them to love the Presbyterian church, the church that we find revealed in the scriptures. And then when that's over, we ask the parents if, if at this point you still feel like your children, you know, their faith is, is, is one that's credible, and if they say yes, uh, then we, we will typically go in because some of these children, I know that doesn't look like it to you, but some of them are a, a little shy, a little bit quiet. Uh, not, not Madison, but uh, Colin. Colin's particularly quiet and shy. And, uh, and we'll go, say, you know, one of the elders and I or a couple of the elders and I will go into their home and we'll sit and we'll just talk with them in the context of their home. Now, that's fun for me. I know others enjoy it because we typically get a piece of pie or cake or something when we do that, but that's not why we go. We go to get to hear these, these, these young covenant children uh, tell us about their love for, for Christ and their faith in Christ and their, their knowledge of why they want to come to the Lord's Supper. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons, as we gather around the table in just a, a, a couple of moments, 
one of the one of the things that happens when the elements are distributed and uh, you take is according to 1 Corinthians 11, you're declaring yourself to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so one of the things that these children all said was, you know, one of the reasons I want to come to the Lord's table is so that, so that I can, so that everybody will know I'm a Christian. And so, you know, Mr. Hurst will be sitting there and, and some, of, some of you guys will be sitting right in here and over here and Mr. Hurst will see you take that bread for the first time and that cup for the first time and, and he will... His response will be, there's a, there's a fellow Christian of mine. There's one of my little brothers and sisters in the faith. And you'll, you'll look up and you'll see others taking it. And you'll say, oh, they're proclaiming the death of the Lord Jesus Christ until he comes again. They're Christians. And so they all, without exception, said that's one of the reasons we want to be at the table. We want everybody to know that we're, we're believers in Christ. And so they're, they're then, from their home setting, they come and sit sit around a table with us, and that's, a, that's, the, that's the more difficult part, as you can imagine, and yet they do a wonderful job because the love of Christ is in their heart, and they tell us what they believe, and we ask them questions, and, and it's amazing. They talk about uh, Jesus dying on the cross, but he could only die on the, cross and save, on the cross and save us if he lived a perfect life. Well, how could he live a perfect life? Can you live a perfect life? No. It's because he was God. He was this son of God we just heard Paul preach about. Are you going to sin ever again? Sure, they know they're probably going to sin again. Will God forgive you? Absolutely. Why? Because Jesus died for my sins. And so it is. They've each one given us that testimony over and over and over. And they probably feel like by now that, boy, I could do that in my sleep. I've said it so many times. And that's good. It would be wonderful to be able to be awakened at 2 o'clock in the morning and just say it, wouldn't it? So they come this morning, and our practice is to present, present them to you. The session's already approved them as communing members, but for you to have the opportunity to hear them answer their vows again and for you to be reminded of your vows. <coughs> Same vows, so you can sit there and renew your vows again while they take these vows this morning and then they're going to come to the Lord's table with us for the first time it's a special day and I hope it never wears off and I hope it never becomes old to you either every time we get to come to this table Jesus gave us this very simple sacrament it's not complicated it's not confusing it's simple the bread represents what the body yeah Christ's body Christ took on a body what does the cup represent? Yeah, his blood that was shed for our sins. In other words, this is the gospel laid out on the table before us. So I'm going to ask you all. And since there's so many, I'm going to ask it, and then you can answer in unison. That means all together at the same time, okay? And uh, they, they want to hear you. So remember that, okay? So let me ask you. Do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy. Do you? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel? Do you? Yes. 
Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? Do you? Yes. Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? Do you? And finally, do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? Do you? Yes. Amen. Let me pray for you all. Father, thank you for these, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for their faith. It's a faith that's not of themselves. It's one that you give them as a precious gift. And we pray that you would increase that faith, even today as they have stood and confessed their faith before these, their friends, their, their family, their loved ones, as they will come in a few moments to take these elements, we pray that as they, they take that little piece of bread, they drink that little bit of, of the fruit of the vine, that you will cause their faith to grow. Spiritual food, Lord, nourish their souls as you will our, all of us in this building. We pray that we'd leave here more like our dear Savior. We ask now, Lord, that as these young men and young women grow up in faith, that you would use them mightily to be ministers and elders and deacons and mothers, those who come alongside to help one another, to bear one another's burdens, that they, as they become the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they become the leaders and servants and and. Uh, that you would use them in a wonderful and mighty way, and you would never take your hand away, that they would never desire to turn to the left or the right. We know that you will stay true. Even when we're faithful, you're, you, when we're faithless, you are faithful. Scriptures tell us that. We believe it. We look forward to seeing your faithfulness to these tonight, today throughout their lives, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've already got to do this and hug them, but I'm not going to hug them right now because some of them would be embarrassed like Ethan. All right, dads and children and Ian, y'all can go back to your seats. And as you do, we will uh, we'll sing. We'll sing to further prepare our hearts to come to this wonderful meal, this sacramental meal as we call it. Selection 252, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, we'll sing the first two verses. Let's stand. Thanks again for listening to this audio sermon from the pulpit of Covenant Presbyterian Church. These sermons are provided for the edification of church members who wish to hear the sermons again, and for those who are providentially hindered from attending our